and welcome to the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Zach Greenwald, joined by Kyle Klachenko. And today we have a very special guest on. Our guest is Dane Miller. And Dane, I just wanted to welcome you on and, and thank you so much for, for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Now, Dane's credentials as an athlete are pretty extensive and his accomplishments, uh, but uh, his accomplishments as a coach as well uh, had quite the resume. And just reading off of, quite frankly, uh, uh, the bio that Dane has from his company, Garage Strengths website, Dane has uh, trained two Olympians, six Olympic trial qualifiers, 25 national champions, 17 state champions, 21 NCAA All-Americans, and this is all covering seven sports. Um, and, and what I wanted to start our show with, Dane, while we're eager to dive into early athletic and early coaching influences and how your methodologies have evolved over time, if we can just perhaps start with, and I believe just officially yesterday, it was announced that the Tokyo Olympics were moved from this very June to 2021. I don't know if the month's been expressed yet. Um, has this impacted your day-to-day lives? Are any athletes that you train really feeling this right now? And have you had even any time to process what's going on in the wake, uh, unless someone has just been unfrozen from like a vault Austin Powers style? COVID-19 is ongoing right now at the time of this podcast. So the Olympics have been moved. Yeah. I mean, it's, dude, it's tough because the way I'm looking at it, the way I look at everything is it's sort of like, I mean, I, I plan out my life right by the quarter essentially. And that's how, I, that's how I try to operate from a business perspective and from a, from a personal perspective. And then from a training perspective, I, I sort of lay out these macro plans like six months in advance. And then I, and then I, I cater back off of that. And I think, I, you know, for me, from a weightlifting perspective, I'm not as affected because all of my, all of my horses are sort of out of the, we're out of the race to go to the Olympics. Now I want to see what ends up happening. I'm assuming they're going to keep the exact same qualification pattern and for weightlifting. And it'll basically still come down to like over the next year, we're going to see what, you know, Maddie Sasser can do and, and Robles and, and, Jenny Arthur and Rogers and all those those people that are going to try and get that last one or two spots on the team um, for weightlifting, you know. So I I don't think it would open up where you know somebody like Haley or 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 one of my other people who who could potentially try and push into that top ranking could actually squeeze in there because you know it's it's pretty much been done. But we don't know. You know, IWF might might come back and say like, hey, we're opening up the next year we're going back to the old, old style of, of qualification. So I, I don't know, but, but as far as my, you know, I literally just got a phone call right before this, where I had to talk with uh, Nick Gwizdowski, who's m- one of my wrestlers that I train and he's a two-time world bronze medalist. And he calls me up and, and he trained yesterday morning, right before they announced everything. And he's like, you know, what do we do? And it's in, they're probably not going to have worlds this year for wrestling. So now he just got off of the – he just won the Pan Am title. Actually, he's calling me right now again. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, what's vibrating? And uh, so Gwiz is like sitting here. He – you know, 
and he's at a point where he's he's 26. He's at a pretty good age still, but but the downside is that his like nemesis in the U.S. Gable Stevenson is like on the rise. He's 21, um, so he's got an extra year to train for Gwiz, and now it's like Gwiz is still going to have another year of training as well. So it's sort of like now I've got to cater. I got to change that, and 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 in the throwing world, um, my one girl's you know number number 12 in the world in discus and and my other i have i have one discus thrower who is guaranteed to go to tokyo from samoa and i was going to, in the samoan contingent but also my discus thrower from the u.s won nationals and went to worlds last year i had four throwers at world champs last year uh from nigeria south africa the u.s and then uh it's actually samoa so um it's it's hard because I'm sitting here trying to figure out like which of my throwers and wrestlers are gonna have to change their training and then which ones will it benefit the most age wise um, and which ones are in a tough spot because financially like they gotta train another year without as much backing because if they did well at the Olympics this year they could get a little bit more financial backing and 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 it's it's sort of hard. There's a lot of stuff behind the scenes, you know, from a planning perspective that, that goes into it. And there, there's a lot of emotional stuff. So it's sort of, you know, I've been, I actually, one of my, but one of my guys that, that trains sent, sent a video of me on my cell phone during training and he, and sort of gave me this caption. Cause I always lose my mind when athletes are on their cell phones and, and he's like coach on his cell phone. But at the moment I'm talking with Alex who's my discus thrower that qualified for Tokyo. And he's and at the time he's trying to figure out like, so he has, he had taken off work for this whole year and he's, he's got one of the best throws in the world already. And and he's like, yo, what, what do I do? You know, like, what am I supposed to do? And so it's, it's, it's tough, but he's going to be in a good spot if he continues to do what he's doing. And then I've got, you know, I know I'm still a little long winded with this answer, but I also have another athlete, a female shot putter who, um, you know, was in, was on track to, I think, shock the world basically. And every, it was like her coming out year and we were about to head to us nationals for, for indoor track and field. And she tore Achilles and we were looking at it like, well, we lost the indoor world championships. Uh, we lost the Olympic trials and, and we've just got to make sure we just got to train for another quad. And now, you know, she's 40 days post-op and, and now we're sitting here going like, shit, like, yeah, dude, Rachel, Rachel legitimately might go to the 2021 Olympics if we get her in good shape and, you know, she could start throwing by the end of July. And it's like, dude, that's crazy. Like we were talking about, we're like, this is crazy. Like Rachel still has a chance to make a comeback and make the Olympics in 2021. And if you had told me that 40 days ago, I would have told you you're insane, you know? So it's, it's really just managing, it's managing everybody emotionally. And, and, and I think that elite athletes, they're dude they just grind like most of them just grind they just want to train that's all that that, that it comes down to and, and and as long as i can provide them like a plan they don't care they'll they'll, they'll bring the wood whenever the day is and 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 whatever happens between now and that day they're gonna they're gonna execute it and that's why they're the best in the world so it's you know, I think Jordan Burrow is one of the best wrestlers in the world said it best. He's like, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to cry about it? Or are you going to prepare for 2021? And and it's like, you know, he, he even said, he's like, I'm going to do both. So it's like, <laughs> you know, yeah. 
I'll shed some tears and then I'll go to training. And I think that that's what everybody's got to do is it's, it's, that's, that's affected by it. as a coach. I, I'm, I'm not changing anything immediately because I want to see if there's an outdoor season for track. I want to see with weightlifting, what happens with, with nationals, you know, and, and then, and then it's like, Hey, you know, once, once this, the, the, the preparation blocks sort of play out, then I can change everything. And then I can say, Hey, this is when the date is, this is how we're going to plan out the, the, the progress over the next six months to 12 months. And then, and then we're just going to roll. So I, I'm actually like, it, it, it does favor my group. Um, uh, mm. But dude, it sucks. It's it's crazy. Like I'm sitting here going, like I'm going to have nationals at, with weightlifting, and then I'm going to go to the Olympic trials in in Eugene for a week, and and I had everything planned out. And now and now that's all, you know. And then I'm going to be in Tokyo for two weeks, and now it's like, well, dude, reality is I'm probably going to be spending a lot more time with my kids. So I, like, yeah, that's that's good, right? <laughs> like I don't care. Like I mean, I care, but it's. It's just delaying things, and I think that that we all just have to realize like there's bigger fish to fry right now, and that's mm-hmm. that's dealing with with the coronavirus and 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 being respectful towards you know what we should be doing as a society, and that and I believe that that's you know quarantining ourselves and not being dipshits, you know. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, and I, I can you know, we we are are interacting with our athletes both on site and remote you know, practically daily. And, you know, I'll hear from athletes. In fact, while you were just saying that uh, an, an athlete had just pushed, it came up on the screen that um, nationals has been quote unquote postponed non surprisingly for weightlifting. Um, and uh, these are athletes too, who, while they're putting a lot of effort into it, a, a nationally competitive, competitive athlete or someone who even just qualifies for nationals is in a much different boat uh, compared to someone who is sacrificing a ton more to make it to the Olympics. So might you speak a little bit more, Dane, on what the process has been like in both, because this to me seems like it, it, an absurd challenge, how you maintain balance of putting forth business development, not just with your, your garage strength developments, but also with your uh, business developments with Earthfed Muscle. And, and I give you this time, too, to maybe speak about both and, um, you know, the histories of both here. Um, but the development of these two companies in your professional development with the handling of elite-level athletes, like you said, it takes a lot of planning, a lot of thought in preparing these plans, and, and also just that emotional care for those athletes. How do those worlds come together for you on a day-to-day basis? Oh, man, that's a good question, dude. That's... And that's caused a lot of like personal struggle and strife and dude, it, it's like, you know, I had to sit, I mean, this all came to a headway for me this past year, probably about a year ago is that like, you know, I, I own earth fed muscle with a, a friend of mine from, you know, childhood and, um, he, yeah, you know, I, I put so much into my athletes, dude. I love coaching. That's all I want to do. Like my purpose on this planet is to coach, right? And like, I love the emotion behind it. I love the, the work, the grind, and 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 the shared experience with athletes, and I and and the the emotional growth and and everything that I can do to to make somebody a better person. That's what I love. And 
I had to sit there and, and I had to decide like, look, I, I can't give earth fed muscle what, you know, so as an owner, if you can think about it, I know it's, it's a little weird if you're not in it, but like, if you think about me as an owner and then you can think about me as a worker for, for earth fed muscle, like I was collecting a, a payment as a worker um, and we weren't really doing owner distributions and it just got to a point where it's like, yo, Chris, you're working and I'm working, but I'm not working at your level and it's not fair to the company. And, and I had to decide like from a financial perspective, can I survive without getting that, that worker payment um, and just get paid through garage strength and just get paid uh, through my athletes that have NGBs that support them. Um, and it's, it's a lot harder than people think. Like it's, you know, financially I'm putting myself behind the eight ball because of that. But at the same time, I just want to coach. That's all I want to do. That's all I've, that's all I give a shit about is, is I'm, I dream about my athletes winning Olympic titles and, and winning national titles and making teams and, and, and winning medals. And, and that's all I care about. And so it, it's been tough because you know, I still work like eight hours a week with EFM, which basically is just meetings. Um, and and then like ideas from a media perspective and content. And, and as far as like product development, I'm fully involved with product development still. But I had to sit there and just say like, I'm still going to be the owner. And then that then we sort of changed um, the financial setup as far as distributions is concerned to, to, to wait, to put more weight on that. Um, which is good. We, we, we're growing so much as a company and we're maturing so much. And Chris is doing a really good job of running everything. And, and the other two full-time workers are doing a really good job. And they also understand that like, dude, I just care about, I just care about training Olympians and, and world championship qualif- qualifiers and stuff like that. They know where my energy goes. Um, I think the hard part I've had with garage strength is, it is so fucking hard to run a business that makes money as a gym and to train world-class athletes. It's like mm-hmm. dude, world-class athletes need more attention. They need, you know, they need more of my time. They need more of my effort. Um, but my business is also, my business needs my attention and it needs, uh, content and it needs ideas. And what, what I've ended up doing is basically taking what we've learned from earth fed muscle. And now I'm like, I've finally spent more time on the business side with garage strength and actually creating plans and, and, and how to, you know, develop an email list and develop followers and to develop, uh, get more touches onto people and, and to provide, uh, solutions to their problem for why their bench sucks and shit like that. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because it's like I'm I'm starting to see see business with garage strength more like the way I see individuals who come on site, and I've always struggled with that. I've always like like just separated them entirely. But it's like I, now I'm looking at it. My online clients are just like my on site clients, and and what's funny is I half of my throwers don't train with me on site. They're, they're, they're in South Africa or they're, you know, they're in like Mm. Michigan or whatever, you know? And it's like, now I'm starting to, to see it that way. And I'm starting to 
put a little more time into my business because I'm realizing that if I put more time into my business, it, it enables me to coach. And that's all I want to do. That's all I, that's all I fuck. That's all I care about. Right. And so I guess, um, it's been tough. It's, it's hard. And like, it's hard, it's hard right now with, with like Facebook, with, with like ads on Facebook and, and knowing how to get in front of people. There's so much media that people get hit with. And learning, learning how to like get in front of people constantly and having the manpower to do that and survive, especially in a gym is, is dude, it's challenging and it's hard. And it, and it, there's times I'm like, maybe I should, maybe I should just go back and work for EFM. But at the end of the day, dude, all I care about is, is that experience with, with athletes. That's all I love. So that's what I'm doing it, you know? Yeah. You know, we, we even talk about the, the mental energy that you would that you put into coaching as a coach, there's really not a lot of mental energy at all. You're kind of just like in your thing. I, I too feel you know, like just born to coach. It's what I love most. When I do it, I, it's something I'm looking forward to. It really like kind of elevates me. And and when things are hard, I recognize that now after experience is just part of the relationship building process and will lead to hopefully better outcomes in the future where to be a coach who's also considering the business that part uh, or the different parts, I should say of the brain that have to, you know, kind of uh, turn on and off or, or perhaps dim down or, or brighten up. It can be super challenging. And fortunately we've now as a company, uh, we're a team of three. My, my wife has come on as our chief marketing officer and head of sales. I, it, it's huge because we're now like, oh, we, we can actually just focus on our athletes. We can, you know, put our effort into writing good programs. And, and it's not just like juggling all these balls in the air. But, you know, I think all potential coaches who are listening to this, who own gyms are, are thinking, you know, how do I juggle all these balls at the same time? And it's not easy. No, it's 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 hard. That And that's where, dude, when people tell me, like they'll DM me and be, hey, can you help me like with, with starting a gym? I'm like, dude, don't do it. it, yeah. don't do it. You, you go be a teacher or something like it, it's such an easier life. And I think that that's at the same time, dude, I complain and I say all this crap, but at the end of the day, this is that I'm like literally living my dream. So I, yeah, you know, I, I say negative things, but, but I think where, where I've struggled the most over the last two years was like, my wife got pregnant, uh, for, with our, th- at the third time. And, um, we find out at 20, 21 weeks that we're having twins. And it's like, she was such an, in like a very important part of the business as far as like, um, like back end stuff, like mm. trying to do website stuff and, and emails and stuff like that. And so when, when the twins were born, that that's what sort of led to the to me leaving Earthfed Muscle as well is that I I like she couldn't do as much at Garage Strength and so I had to I had to also pick up some of that slack as well so I think that's that's the hard part that people don't see is it's like it's it's not just the business and it's not just the athletes it's also dude you want to have a family too and, and you want to be happy with your family you don't want to go home and you put out all this energy to your athletes and you go home and you're miserable like I I don't want to do that mm-hmm. so. I think that it just takes time. It's, it's like maturation with everything. And, and it's, you know, I started to go to therapy and I'm like, wow, this is, I should have done this, this 
10 yeah. years ago because I would have had a better perspective on business and, and learning and, and being progressive with my thought instead of always like beating myself up for not being successful from a business side or, or whatever it might be. I'm, I'm so much more open to learning from my failures. And I always learn from my failures before, but I, at, a, at a much slower, more <laughs> rate, I guess. <laughs> yeah, before, before uh, um, I have a couple uh, training questions that have been circulating in my head even as you've been talking, but some of the things you mentioned made me think about, uh, one, the, the, the book, The E-Myth, and he, he mentions yeah. in that um, about like a baker who's, who's really good at baking. Everyone says, hey, go start a shop and not realizing that once you start a baking shop, you're no longer a baker, you're now a business owner. And so you probably be doing the actual baking as much. And and you actually have to work on growing that business. You're not just the worker in the business. So it changes the whole dynamic of of everything. Um, And then the other quote I was thinking about was, and hopefully I get this right, but it's essentially like you can have almost anything you want, but you can't do everything you want. So like if you focused on something, you could probably do whatever you wanted. But if, if you're trying to get everything, then none of it's probably going to happen. Right. And and I, I think what you're saying, like, it's, it's funny you say that because two days ago, you know, th- this whole, the whole coronavirus thing, I, I, I go home and so I'm spending most of my morning writing blogs and developing like a full blown content plan around products that we have. Hmm. And I'm, and I'm, making videos and I'm spending more time, uh, setting up podcasts like this. And I'm, and I'm like sitting there and then I coach the few athletes that are still like in quarantine from 11 to like two 30. And then I mm. come back up and then, and into my office and I do some more office work and I prepare for my next day and I'm going home at like five thirty six o'clock. And I said to my wife, I go, dude, when we don't have a quarantine, I'll work from 7 until 8.30 at night, 7 a.m. to 8.30 at night. Now I'm working from like 7 until 5.30, and I'm doing things for the business that are very productive, and I'm also coaching my elite athletes, and, I, and then I'm preparing for the next day. I'm like, this is actually like what my life should be like, and mm. it takes something crazy like the coronavirus for me to sit here and yeah. be like, wow, this is actually what I want my life to be like. Like maybe I should do this more yeah. often. You know? Yeah. yeah. You, when you're a business owner and this goes back to what you were saying with the e-myth is you get so caught up in every day, grind, grind, grind. And you never take a step back and be a business owner or sit there and say, Hey, you know what? I don't want to own a business. I want my wife to run the business and I just want to be the baker, you know, and that's okay. So I, but I think the biggest thing with business owning and this stuff is like, dude, it's 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 all such a process and you've got to be open to that. You have to be open to a process just like an athlete needs to be – like business owners need to be open to it. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Exactly. So, so Dane, I guess the first um, uh, more training question I have just to lead it off would be uh, I know that you spent some time with Bonderchuk, um, and I think I've also heard you mention Charles Poliquin was another kind of mentor of you. But in general, could you just talk about who kind of like some of your mentors or people who have influenced your programming have have been? And then um, maybe after that, we'll, we can ask some questions about how you've you've taken from each of those and uh, use that um, in in your current programming. Because I'm also interested how 
you switch between sports still using these principles of training. Cause I think that's always really interesting to see how someone takes um, their principles, but then still becomes an expert in like, I don't know, it sounds like seven different sports is where you're currently working in. And that can be very challenging. Yeah, I think. So I did, I think it's, it sort of starts with, so I was, I was a religious studies major in college. And I think that that helped me have a very critical mindset where I, I was so, I learned how to read texts and documents from a very critical manner. And I learned how to think critically, which I think was very important for me at that age when I was, you know, 19, 20, 21, I I learned how to like really um, read something and then contemplate what it meant and, and how, how, what the practicality was behind it. And so that, that sort of helped me quite a bit. And I, I and right after college, I trained with Bunderchuk, um, 07 and 08. And I think that you know, I went up, I went up to British Columbia, Canada, and I, and my training partner is the freakiest machine that you could ever imagine. His name's Dylan Armstrong. He's a world silver medalist, Olympic bronze medalist could power. He power clean 200 kilos for four. He's like a freak of nature. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. He, he bent a barbell once. Like he literally just looked at us with 315 on the bar and he's like, you know, we were all doing balance benches. He's like, yo, bro, Dane, watch this. I'm going to bend this bar. I'm like, no, you're not. Cause he's a goon. And he's like, yeah, watch, watch. And he just holds it up and brings it down on his chest. Like as hard as he can and just smashes it and completely bends the bar. <laughs> oh, Jesus! Well, we're at the gym, but still, whatever. Um, anyway. <laughs> I, I think they, I, what's interesting in hearing about you starting that origin in uh, college is that um, do you at all keep up with um, any of the content or literature that Greg Knuckles puts out, either through his own channels or through Mass? Yeah, I have actually. Yeah. So he actually was a religious studies major as well and, I know that. and yeah. speaks to the same exact things you have. Yeah. I had no idea that you were as well. And it actually makes a lot of sense based on your, you know, seemingly these progressions and your accomplishments. I, I, I just had to interject there, but um, you, you, were, you were talking about um, your origins with Bonnerchuk. And if you may, Dane, sorry, in, in maybe talking about, Bonderchuk and or with him and how he influenced you. Do you mind letting our audience know? We certainly do. We just want to respect our audience may not know uh, how kind of Dr. B separates himself from the field and what he's most known for. Yeah. So he, he's like, I mean, he's Olympic champion, Olympic bronze medalist. He's coached 18 Olympic medalists. He's, you know, former world record holder, coach, the world record holder in the hammer throw. He's sort of like in this, in the field, in the, throws world he's sort of known as like arguably the best throws coach ever um and he was the head of the sport institute in in the soviet union um and he he's got a phd in 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 basically like educational sciences like how people learn and so he not only was he a huge player in the world of track and field, but he also was a huge influence on how they developed uh, their weightlifting programming and, and, and their wrestling programming and stuff like that. And basically it's all like analyze how a sport moves and comprehend the like energy systems being utilized and then create something that has the absolute best transfer of training for each particular sport. 
And I think that that, you know, it's, it's, it was cool for me to go train with him because he's so bright and peculiar in a very unique way. And he's, but at the same time, he's very open to people who want to learn and, and, and his methods were so simple. They were so simple. It was, it was like a dream, like for me as an athlete, but also where, you know, he also loved me. Like, I I swear I was like his favorite athlete that I could go to his house all the time and just ask him a million questions. And, and when I got too annoying, he would just scream at me and tell me to leave the house. But otherwise, like he was very open to, to my inquisitive nature. And I think that that one, it taught me like as a coach, to be open like that and to, to, to tell people what you're doing. But it also, it, it was just like, it, it doesn't need to be as complicated as we make it out to be. There's some, there's some very specific things that need to be focused and, 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 um, and maybe a little bit more advanced, but most of it does not need to be as difficult as we, we put it out to be. And I think that that, that was a huge impact on me. And, and that sort of led me, that actually led me to my connection with Charles Poliquin is that when I left uh, Kamloops, British Columbia. I moved home, and and uh, the Olympic champ from 2004 in the shop put Adam Nelson had called me up. Like he, like dude, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have anything. I and I, this yeah. guy was like my idol in in college. And so I'm living at home with my parents, and and uh, we're pretty like, you know, I live on a farm, and and my growing up, we didn't have cable TV. We're very like, uh, I guess utilitarian i guess but we're you know my dad calls down and i remember i'm like downstairs reading uh a book from thomas kurtz it's like a it's like a soviet strength whatever with thomas kurtz is a guy's name and i'm reading it and i remember hearing my dad go dane yeah i'm like yeah what's up adam nelson's on the phone i'm like who he's like adam nelson like Adam Nelson, the shot putter, who he had won the Olympics. It's like he had just gotten back from the 2008 Olympics. And so he wanted to know, like, I pick up the phone and sure enough, it's Adam Nelson. And he ends up, he, he trained with me for like six months. And he wanted to know, like, what did we do with Dr. B? What do we do with Dr. B? And he couldn't believe how simple it was while I was training him. But then, he, you know, by the end of the time that we were working together, he's like, hey, I think you should go work with, with Poliquin. And, and at the time he was in Rhode Island. And, um, you know, so I, I went up there for a couple stints and, and that, that really helped me sort of unite, um, what I had learned growing up and being infatuated with sports performance when I was young and being around my dad. And then it united that with like, with Dr. B and, and Paul Quinn was obviously more, uh, scientific in, in, in his explanations, but also pretty practical. Um, and over time that just led to my development in, in the sport of weightlifting um, and I'd like to, sh- to just say that, you know, my first event that I ever coached at was the day of the opening ceremonies for the 2012 Olympics. And by 2016, I was coaching Norik Vardanian at the Olympic trials in, in 2016. So it was sort of like a, a fast rise, but I, I attribute it mainly to Bunderchuk and Poliquin. And then, and then, you know, immediately by 2014, um, sort of just developing a whole bunch of athletes based off of the principles from Dr. B and, and some of the stuff from Poliquin. And then I, I got in contact with, with Norik and, and, and I'm going out to the OTC and being around, um, um, 
Zygmunt and, and, you know, guys like him. And it's like, I had some really good influences and I would say it would be Bunderchuk and Paula Quinn and, and, and Norik had like the most, the most Im- impact on me as far as external um, factors for me. But the, the, the best, the best experience I got was from my athletes. Like my athletes taught me more than anybody. And I think that that's, that's where I think a lot of people l- miss out. And I think that that's what Dr. B taught me the most was like, dude, you've got to realize every system works, but you've got to learn your athletes. And he would always compare me to Dylan and Dylan to uh, Jesse, who another training partner and uh, Jesse to Justin. And he would always say, he'd say like, dang, you and Dylan, you're the same. You yell, you throw things. Like we would get mad and, and pissed. And, and Jesse was sort of like the more laid back guy but then sometimes he would have that rage in him and then justin was always level always even keeled always like calm never never losing his cool and he would always just sit there everybody's different and you've got to learn from them and i and i think later on i didn't i didn't realize it like you know now i obviously i realize it but it was like he would always say about all these experiments and and that's the stuff that i that i was doing with my athletes i would try anything i would read any any book any person but you know obviously it always came back to Bunderchuk and and Poliquin and and Norik and and the stuff that I learned from from him that he had learned from his dad right and it's like those three and then you you couple that with me having a, a pretty open mind and athletes as long as I explain what I'm my goals are and what I'm working towards and maybe what I'm trying to learn from them um I think that's the biggest thing is that if you've got athletes, you can learn anything that you want and, and you've, you've got to be willing to communicate with them. And I think that's where a lot of coaches struggle is they don't listen. They don't. Um, it's such a it's typically from coaching. It's such a fascist regime and it and it should be for the most part. But there should be a little not, maybe not not fascist. Uh, positive, positive dictator, I guess is how I call it. Uh, <laughs> where I sort of like dictate what's going on. And then, and then about 20% of the time, I really want to listen to what my athletes have to say and what their feedback is, because that, that helps me get inside of their mind and what they're thinking and what they're, how they're learning and how they're handling my feedback and how they're handling my cues and how they're handling those specific movements and what they feel. Um, And then that helps me in the future when the next version of that person comes along. And I think that that's something that we forget is that, uh, you know, we always want to read all these books and we always want to learn from all these people, but the, the best, the best people to learn from are right in front of you when you're coaching. Yeah. I think Dan, you know, we, we have somewhat of a similar story in that I do recall. Um, so I had spent a lot of time working with athletes at muscle driver USA when they were still around. And, um, I remember, uh, in prep for 2014 world and kind of making a march at 2016 Olympics as, as it was still kind of like, you know, uh, on the table and a goal, just getting a, a, a call from Travis Cooper, who was experiencing some issues with his own training and, and just running up against um, some, some more residual uh, pains and, and nagging injuries and in being able to produce some results with some of his you know, teammates on muscle drivers, just kind of like this trial by fire time with him that happened over, uh, you know, the course of about a year. And, and it, 
it proved to be successful. But the challenge with that is that in having worked with Travis, it opened doors for us. So it be it became imperative that while as young coaches we were growing and learning, we really had to learn from our athletes because we could sit behind the textbooks all day, but because we had the privilege of being exposed to really good athletes, we just had all of this potential growth from a business standpoint and, and from our own coaching knowledge because we're getting all this incredible feedback and experience that the athletes are bringing to the table. And I think many coaches forget that. Um, but one thing I want to just work back on, and I think it's interesting, and, and I, I feel bad because I feel like, Dan, I interrupted you. The thing about you being a religious studies major made me think of Greg, but you had mentioned with religious studies that you're, you're thinking critically, you are um, you know, perhaps able to digest text that's a little, little more longer form. And I hear you describe uh, Dr. B's um, methodologies as being simple, easy to understand. Um, for those who are listening, there's you know almost over 30 periodization schemes that Dr. B's created, and articles are written as to how to understand Dr. B's methodologies. Oh. And it sounds like the this this uh, decorated shot putter was seeking to know what the the quote unquote secrets were. So, can you explain in just kind of fleshing out some of the details what ultimately you discovered from Dr. B as being these like simple hallmarks to creating success yeah, for an elite training athlete. principles that he has yeah yeah i think i think with dr b dude i think people i read those articles and i'm like yo you have no idea what you're talking about like like, people, <laughs> like dude it's sad like there's a major website that posted a whole like uh, they posted an interview with somebody and I'm like sitting there reading it. Like, dude, this is not even close to what this, this, this situation was like. And, and on top of that, like I was tight with Justin Rohde who stayed up there for like six more years with him and, and with Dylan. And, and I knew what was going on. Like none of the, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the communication with Dr. B is one, the language barrier, but also, Dude, Michael Yeasis did a horrible job translating a lot of his books. And his books are really, really hard to read. That's the thing. A lot of people read his stuff and they're like, dude, this is like really, really confusing. And, and it and it can be to a point, but ultimately it's like he he breaks down athletes into into three different athletes and he and he creates a stimulus and where and where he's he's and this is like world-class throwers. This is like world-class athletes that he's taking is that they all react. There's three, there's three like basic curves of their reaction to a, to a stimulus. And we would do the exact same workout every single day for yeah. four weeks straight, every single day. Um, and we would measure, and then you would see on what days your result would be up and what, what day your result would be down. Um, and so the main point, though, where I think a lot of people forget is you've got to do your competitive movement every single day. So if you're a freestyle wrestler, you better be on the mat every single day you train. If you're an Olympic weightlifter, you should snatch and clean jerk every day. If you're a shot putter, you better be throwing the shot every day. And I think that that's, that's like a principle of his that is very, very uh, key is like your competitive movement needs to be done it's especially because it's technical it needs to be done all the time now that the next the next things would be okay you've got your you've got your general uh strength stimulus uh, and, and that that's 
to a point doesn't need to be as high as some people think. At least that's Dr. B's feeling. I think that's where I I would I would uh, veer away from some of his thought process with that. And then you've got movements that that almost are very they mimic almost the throw or they mimic the the competitive movement almost to a T. So for um and and he would call that special strength and I call it special strength. So uh, in weightlifting, that could be using variations. Um, in in throwing, it would be instead of throwing a shot, your special strength would be doing a half turn with a dumbbell or taking a standing throw with a dumbbell or using a shot swing. Um, so for, for weightlifting, I always would look at it like, okay, the competitive movements is clear. It's snatch, clean, and jerk, right? And then you've got um, – your, your strength movements, which would be pulls and squats. And then you've got your special strength, which would be a variation. So like a low hang snatch or a power clean or a power jerk or, um, you know, blocks like pulling, like clean or snatching off of a block, whatever that might be. And that, that is like, that's the layout that I've always taken, taken with my programming across all the sports is like, dude, this is how it's laid out. And now, um, it's been up to me to, to test the uh, loading and to test uh, rep changes and, 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 and rep sequencing. And, um, and even, I think, I think even identifying athletes more specifically than he did as far as how they react to uh, stimulus. Cause he would always sort of just, he, he, he almost felt like, it always seemed like he felt like training, like you were rea- your reaction in training was entirely based around training. But he was sort of forgetting that we were all working jobs as bouncers, and and you know your sleep wasn't the best. So I think that that's where I've I've tried to improve upon is like, look, if I've got a kid who's an only child, guess what? He's probably not going to handle criticism as well as a kid who's got five brothers and sisters. Like that's just that's reality. Like I'm not I'm I'm like that's that's just that factors into how I coach the kid. If, if, if I have a kid whose father died when he was five years old, he's not going to handle shit as well as somebody who, who's grown up with a hard ass dad or a hard ass mom. Like it's, it's a fragile situation. And and that's, that's stuff that has to be factored into coaching. And I think because Dr. B was in the Soviet system, it was always like cut and dry. And, and in our world, that's not reality. So it's like, I'm not saying Dr. B was wrong. I'm saying he was the best in his environment. And I believe that there's ways that we can improve um, sort of his athlete analysis. And I think I've done a, a pretty good job with that. And I think that that's, it, it still goes back to the principles that he taught me, learn from your athletes and apply a system that has the competitive movement, the strength movements that are needed for those competitive movements. And then the special strength movements that 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 individual needs to enhance their competitive movement, right? It always goes back to that. So it sounds like Dane uh, and and we've ha- had the pleasure of having um, Mike Tashir on the show, who we know has largely been influenced as has all of our reactive training systems from Doctor B and and that it kind of exists in the powerlifting world. And um, you know, one one thing in in learning more about the systems and how they work. It, it is very um, uh, straightforward, like you said, and that you're, you're keeping many training variables the same, repeating them quite often, and uh, that you're imposing the stress, and then just kind of sitting back and taking note of, of the results. 
like you mentioned with, with Dr. B, and, and I know that this is the matter with, with many Soviet coaches, it was, you know, like they, they, there wasn't much time for these interpersonal considerations or emotional considerations. So, so you bring that to the table um, in addition to the note taking that you have in response to the athlete's outcomes and perhaps drawing parallels between what happens outside the gym and, and the responses to the imposed stress inside the gym. Um, if, if, if I have all that sounding correct, right. One thing that I'm curious about is how in this kind of system imposes stress, the, uh, athlete performs the exercise and you get your results. Are you considering also an athlete's technical development? Cause I, I see when, and, and when I kind of really learned how Mike T does things with RTS, it made a lot of sense to me enough to say that powerlifting isn't technical, but we can, I think we can all agree that perhaps something like, uh, you know, throwing or, or especially Olympic weightlifting, this is a very, you know, intensive technical considerations. Yeah. How does this fall into your, uh, coaching of athletes as it kind of falls into the greater picture of programming and emotional considerations for the athlete? Yeah. I think that that's, that's the key is that with Dr. B the, the first day it was like, Technique, 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 technique. Everything's about technique. And I think that that's, that was his whole thing is like, he didn't, as elite throwers, like we weren't, we didn't need to be, we weren't training to be as strong as a typical, typical American shot putter. And I think that that's something, um, I mean, I think that's something I still carry over where it's, everything is technically oriented. So even, so I think that that, that's where it factors into like, if you got somebody snatching, that doesn't mean they're going ham every day. That means like, hey, we're going to focus on the technical model. And that's where I think a lot of people miss is like clarifying what is your technical model, clarifying what your goals are from the floor to the knee, from below the knee to above the knee, from the knee to the hip, from the hip to the catch. And like very like ingraining that in every athlete over and over and over again and communicating that clearly so that all of all of the growth that they're doing when they're doing their competitive movements they know what they're working towards from a from a technical perspective and then making those that special strength movement is not necessarily about just gaining like brute strength as we would think about it it's it's probably more so about gaining technical strength so like being able to hold positions that you need to be in to optimize your movement and i think that that's where um I think that's where a lot of people miss with Dr. B is his technical change. Like he, especially in throwing, like he, in, in the hammer throw, he changed, he changed the technique. And I think that that Americans have actually um, misinterpreted his technical model in the, in the hammer, which is a whole nother podcast that we could save for <laughs> a throwing podcast, not for a weightlifting one. Um, and I think that, that, you know, he did that with, with the shot put as well. And I think that, um, and it, and I think that that's always been, that's always been a, a carryover to me is like, if you came to the gym, you could quiz every weightlifter, even my 13 year old that, you know, even my son Lincoln knows what I want him to do when, when I, when he pulls the bar to his knee, he knows what that needs, what needs to happen. And I think that that's, it's got to always come back to that technical aspect and and the goal then is like all right here's the technical goal here's the technical model and and 
part of my analysis of an athlete is how do they handle cues? How do they handle my stress? Because I put a lot of stress on people, like just me personally. Like, dude, when I'm coaching, I bring it all the time. So it's like people, people, I, I have to read their reactions over and over again. And if I can learn their reactions, what, what their reactions mean, that's only to get them to be better at the technical movement. It, it's only to improve their technique. Because it's easy to get under a squat bar and squat. It's easy to do that. It is not easy to snatch. It has. It's all about technique, and that's why these dipshits who 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 say like it's too much to to teach college football players how to snatch or clean. That's because they suck at coaching. They're not good coaches. If they were good coaches, they would be able to relate to kids from the streets of Reading or or, or Philadelphia, whatever city is near. You know, that's what's near me. Um, and they would be be able to relate to kids from, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. They could relate to any kid because they understand feedback and they and and they understand that technique rules in every single sport. And so, if you can learn how a kid takes technical cues on a platform, you're going to learn how they take technical cues in the shot circle or on the football field or on the wrestling mat, and that all carries over. But but strength coaches are too dumb to realize that. Or they're just too lazy. And it's like, that's the whole thing is like for us at the gym, everything is always technically related. And it, and it you know, at, at the same time, it's also understanding like, hey, sometimes like people don't have the best technique and it's just where they are. And this goes back to our business discussion. It's where they are in the process. Like, yeah, you know, if I have a 13 year old and he looks like shit when he snatches, well, he's 13. He's only snatched, you know, 2000 reps. Well, wait till he's 20 and he's got freaking 45,000 reps in him. Well, then we can talk, you know, it's like, yeah, but coaches will be, Oh, well, did you see his, his snatch wasn't the best. He did this. It's like, well, no kidding. Like give him some time, give him some more, some more reps and, and give him some positive influence and, and, and he's going to get better. And that's just, I think that that's the biggest thing in weightlifting that we've got to understand is like it takes time to develop technique. And that's why it, that's, that's where I will say with Dr. B, he was always hounding us. No, you're jumping. No, you're jumping. No, you're jumping down, down, down. And that's the same thing that I try and carry over. It's just, I try and carry it over with a little bit better cues based off the person that I, that I'm directing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find it fascinating how the, the, the technical, uh, development requires evolving technical language and, 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 and discussion, especially based on, like you said, the, the athlete's age, for instance, like if you have someone perhaps who has never touched a barbell and they're lacking, you know, uh, some, some foundational motor skills to be able to progress and, and, and gain like position specific strength. Uh, Kyle, for instance, was working not long ago with some one of his athletes who's 10 years old, right? And they're working on just like the rhythm and the timing of the lift from an exposure standpoint. And I'm just so fascinated because we dive into the technique. We also know when to kind of let the athletes just like kind of practice and understand that process, which takes a lot of time, like not always talking. Um, but it is cool to see how that process might evolve from like the conceptual to the practice and feeling like confident with the rhythm of things to just, you know, over time, uh, fine tuning these details and and how programming I think follows a similar trajectory too, from, uh, simple to advanced. And, And perhaps I would make the argument that people try to go simple to advanced too early with both technique and programming. 
Yeah, I, I think. Sorry, my son just came in looking for my wife. <laughs> um, I I think that that's that's big. I, what, what you even when you were saying like f- for me is is there's days I think that throwing has helped me a lot with this where I will hound athletes like where I think hey this is a technique day in my mind I gotta and I use like auto regulation for the most part with the way we follow our our periodization scre- uh, scheme, but it's like hounding with technique and then there's also got to be days where it's like dude just let the athlete go like yeah if if you stood in a back if you stood in the back at a u.s meet at nationals and you the cues that coaches dude it's crazy it kills me it's like yo the work's done you 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 follow football like you think a football coach is trying to correct the a three-point stance when they're going out on on a saturday or a sunday in the nfl like Learn from the best coaches in the world. We have like, like we can watch Bill Belichick coach. We can watch uh, Nick Saban coach. They don't overcoach their people. They'll coach them up and then they let them go. And I think that that's the thing that as coaches in weightlifting, where it's it's such a technical movement, it's like, yo, there's there's technical cues you've got to use, and then you get to the point with those with those cues where you back off and you let the athlete feel it out, and then especially in a competition, it's like why are you guys saying this dumb shit before your athletes going to go out on the platform? Like all they need is positive motivation. That's it. Positive, positive them, vibes tell them they're a champion. Tell them you want to see, you know, you want to see them express their strength on the, you know, whatever, whatever those words are is, is cool, but don't give them like, well, you got to make sure that your, your pinky is, is uh, <laughs> a little bit harder. Like shut up. Well, I do think, cause I have the same fits where I'll like, you know, we have coaches who we have good relationships with. We'll, we'll try to have the same platform paired with someone who we know we won't be in that same situation with. Um, but I, I do think it sometimes perhaps speaks to the the coach's uh, lack of confidence either in 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 what they're doing and 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 lack of understanding of their role in, in that particular time and how a coach and I, I still am challenged by this and i'm working on it actively how when you have those sessions where it's kind of like a sit back and watch them learn but don't let them regress it is kind of like a similar energy that by the time competition comes around you, as a coach you better be sure that that's like kind of in check because i think it can be hard if you're the coach and you're teaching complex skill how do you let that happen as the athlete needs to have happen without in, interfering in an adverse way? It's, it's such a really complex thing with, like you said, probably comes from just getting the athlete's feedback. Hey, that's too much. Hey, that's too little. Hey, by the way, I, I don't even know what you've meant by this cue for the past week. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. These, I, these I also think that's where like the art comes into play. I think, um, being a good manager of people comes into play. Having a social clue also comes into play. Like a lot of the people that I, that I listen to and I'm like cringe, like cringeworthy stuff. It's like, they're also the people that never know when to like, they, they don't know when to stop talking in a conversation or they, they, they are overbearing. Like you're, they're the guy like, like that you go out to eat and they just talk the whole time about themselves. <laughs> but, like, yo get a clue but then then you hear him coach you're like oh that makes sense you know and it's like i think it i think learning like what what you had said it's like 
you've got to learn from your athletes and, and how they handle cues. And then you've got to ask them, hey, what did you think about this? How'd you feel with this? And, and ask them after the training session's over. And like, I'll, I'll do that all the time where I'm like, yo, what did you think about this? And they'll say, well, I didn't really even think about it when after you told me. Or sometimes it's like, dude, that cue like really, really helped me finish my clean. Like I, I really like one, I finished better and then I caught it tighter because of the way you, you had, you would use that. And it was like, th- then you can sit there and say, all right, I'm going to use that in the future. Not just make shit up at a competition time, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, now what, what I would like to begin, uh, kind of, and I know we've been dancing around, but I've just so enjoyed having, I, I reach over to Kyle. I'm like, I'm just loving this talk. I feel like we could go on forever. Um, do you think, Dane, that we could spend a little time talking about, because I think we fleshed out more with, with Dr. B and explaining his methodologies. Do you think that perhaps we could dive at least like just beginning to introduce some of Charles's ideas and how that's influenced you and then maybe convince you <clears throat> while you're live and on the spot here that we could get you for like a part two of this series just in being mindful of your time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do that. Dude, I love hearing myself talk. I'll, I'll go on as many podcasts as I can. Okay, so so um, we, we we spoke about Dr. B, uh, and if you can uh, maybe just introduce uh, for those who don't know um, Charles Paul Quinn and, and uh, what he's accomplished, and, and what really distinguishes Charles from the field, or what distinguished Charles from the field as um, I, I think, yeah, I think with Charles, it was like everything came back to. A very, very, very like, dude, this is what was crazy is that everything was like super structured periodization. Like, um, (laughs) and I, I, I've stolen, like I use undulating periodization, which I've stolen from, from Schmidt Bleicher, Dietmar Schmidt Bleicher. And this is like all stuff I learned from Paula Quinn. Um, and so it was like super, super structured. And you got to realize that Dr. B would write a training program on napkins and I'm not making that shit up. He would give you a napkin and he'd have like, um, what are the, like a, when you would draw like stick figures, I forget, like I I was going to say hieroglyphs, but I know that's not what it is, but he would, he would would use that to draw exercises. He would use that and you put it on a napkin and he'd hand it to you and then you'd have to keep it for four weeks. And that's how, that's how you got a program. So like, Going from that to then with Charles, like this is the rep is understand what every rep means and and the rep determines everything. And then it's like, this is the exercise selection order and and this is the priority day and and, and all that stuff. And I think that that's where Charles is also was also very, very much so uh, about structural balance, which Dr. B did not touch on at all. And that was something that I believe he was ahead of the time too. Like he basically created like the field that Kelly Starrett owns, right? Like I, I think he really, he really created that like structural balance and, and making sure that athletes are moving as effectively as possible. But he also focused heavily on um, maximal strength. And that's where with, with Dr. B, there was almost zero, um, there was almost like zero focus on maximal strength with Charles. It was like, you've got to be strong. You've got to be strong. You've got to be strong. Um, and I think that that's, 
you've got to be strong with structural balance and, and, and structural integrity. So make sure that your left leg is as strong as your right leg. Make sure that your hips are super mobile. Make sure that your you know your your pull ups are, are strong and, and 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 that your thoracic spine is mobile. All the, all that stuff, Doctor B never touched on. And I think that that's where um, with, with with Charles was like he basically took what what the U S did in like the seventies and eighties with bodybuilding. And he started to implement uh, sports performance comprehension, which he had learned from Pierre Waugh, who was a, a, a Canadian weightlifting coach. And then um, some of the stuff that he had learned as he was also like the uh, Canadian coach for, for the luge, as, for the strength, the strength portion. Um, and, and then started to implement that stuff while using bodybuilding principles to enhance structural integrity and then using that like sort of combining that into a, a pretty unique program, a c- pretty unique system. So I think that that's where for me, it was pretty cool to go from Dr. B who's writing on napkins to go to Charles, who's very, very science oriented and very structural. And dude, he's also got, he also had like massive arms. So it was also one of those things where like, this guy's like very unique. He was a very unique person. Um, but he's also just yoked. So you listen to him a little bit more and he had a really good understanding of nutrition and he had a really good understanding of pharmaceuticals, even to the point where he'd be like, dude, I know that this guy's taking this. Um, I think that was part of his downfall as a strength coach is that he was, he was into that stuff too much. Probably. Um, I mean, he worked with Pat Mendez for a while before he had gotten popped. Hmm. Um, but his his stuff was very applicable, and I and and it did. It's it was it's really good. It's you know any book he's written is well written. Um, he I, he tends to he tended to bullshit about some of his numbers, and I knew that you know Adam Nelson had hooked me up with him, and and even Adam would say Charles would lie about some of the some of the weights he would hit in the weight room. But at the at the end of the day, dude, like uh, from a principle from a methodology perspective, his stuff works, and it, it worked it worked really well, and and. Um, he worked with a lot of guys in the NFL. He worked with, you know, he worked with Helen Marulis, who was a 2016 Olympic champ in wrestling. He, he basically, the last year and a half of, of him being alive, he, he like saved her career. And I think that that's, that's a, a, a that's important stuff that I, I think everybody's got to recognize from him as a strength coach. He's, he's very, very good. He was very good. Um, it was just a different perspective. And from what I've done now is like, take, take that structural integrity work and, and try and mold that with the principles and, and the max strength work that Charles would focus on and try and mold that into what I have, you know, with Dr. B. And, and, and that's, that's why I think I'm, I'm one of the best throws coaches, hopefully in the world. Um, I don't know, that might be a little arrogant, but I, I, that's my goal is to be that, that guy. And I, and I, and I want to use, um, those methods in, and I do use those methods in weightlifting as well. And I think that that's, that's where our success has come from is, is combining those two different camps into this unique, unique system that we have here. And I think that that's, you know, our, our results speak for themselves. I, and I, and I think that, that when you come to a training, when you come see training here and you're like, wow, everybody in this gym is from Reading, you know, we're not, we're not bringing in people from all over the world, like everybody's from this immediate area and all of our results are essentially from this immediate area. And I think that that's at least in the sport of weightlifting. I think that's, that's because of the, the stuff that I learned from both of those guys, but especially from Charles. 
Yeah, I don't know of many outside of what Garage Strength has done that has produced with what they have available versus an, you know, an, an athlete moving to work with a coach or an athlete, uh, um, or I should say, you know, a coach perhaps working um, exclusively remotely with athletes. I, I think it's very impressive. Would you say that, Dane, that Charles created, at least in how you now implement programming, uh, and how I believe it's discussed now is just like more robustness to the athletes development and to their programming, just like a more complete package. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think we're, we're like with what, what Dr. B's system was like, we always think like the Soviet union was so far ahead of us. And I think they were because they were more simple to a point, mm. but Americans are like, Dude, we're so into the little, little details of the nitty gritty stuff. And as much as I talk trash on that stuff because it, it gets overbearing, it's so annoying, but it also is what makes systems pretty good, you know? And it's like, um, I, I think that that's definitely a good way to put it is like Charles knew the, the little things that you could do on a regular basis. Like, Hey, yo, know, Olympic weightlifting people are getting hammered. Their backs are blowing up. Well, well let's go into like powerlifting and look what those goons are doing with the reverse hyper. All right, well let's bring that over to weightlifting and let's use that as, as a little trick to, to try and heal people's backs up. And I think that that's definitely a good way to put it is like he, he did add more robustness to, to periodization in general. Um, and I've even seen, you know, Bill Kramer, uh, one of the sports scientists at UConn who used to be at Penn state and, and talk about him and like, Hey, Charles is, is essentially a sports scientist that was, that became a strength coach. And I think that that's, that's very hard to do is, is to take like lab work and then apply it practically because it's, it's hard. It's hard to be able to, to, to switch your mindset from 100% logic in a lab to, emotion as a coach. And I think that that's something that he also did pretty well with as well. Um, it's funny you say that. Cause there's this, uh, this, this, I don't know if you, have you heard of, uh, Milana Jovanovic by any chance thing? No. So he, he's, um, he's out of Serbia and, and he, uh, he uses a lot of like statistical thinking and model thinking to apply to, to, um, a sports science. And what he would call that is like a small world versus large world where like, what how science is done and how studies are done is is this small world construct because it's isolating variables but that doesn't always mean it's going to work in the large world and like that's why it can be very hard because this this thing where you've isolated and created that your own world is not going to always work in this large world that isn't those variables and that's why it can be so hard because once you get into this complex system everything can change um, and that even speaks to what you talked about earlier with, um, I believe you're saying with, with Dr. B where in, in, in Soviet Russia, everything was like the athlete was an athlete and they like slept and they ate and they trained and there was no like emotional, um, uh, aspect of it. And so they were almost like a study in themselves. And then we tried to take a lot of that. And then we're like, well, it doesn't really work when someone has a full-time job and is doing this and they're not being paid by the government to lift because it's kind of like this. I don't, I don't know if you were at Waxman's gym when um, Klokov came. Um, Were you there for that event? Me? 
Yeah. No, no. I, I, I have heard though, and this is just maybe like a, a you know funny story that we can begin to wind things down on, but just speaking to this and and, and also to, to drug use as you mentioned briefly, uh, when Klokov and Vasil, when they, they came over, they're speaking to American coaches, basically trying to find out why we suck so bad. And Klokov was like, this is muscle snatch. And um, he's like, this is a uh, halt deadlift. And all the coaches, as I've heard this from uh, um, uh, from Max and from, from a few others, all the coaches were like, we do that, we do that, we do that. And basically, Klokov is like, why do you like? Why are you guys so bad? <laughs> and then we had to explain capitalism and how our athletes are groomed and how we don't take drugs. And Klokov is basically like, oh shit, well, like I, I can't really, I can't help you. <laughs> I think, I think that that's that was one thing with Doctor B, even that, and I think that Charles was trying to do some of that stuff, and for a while he was even like giving. Like, dude, way back in like 2009, 2010, like he was giving people who broke American records, he was he was like trying to pay those athletes in weightlifting. Like, I'm pretty sure he funded the Barnes brothers for a little bit, um, wow. and 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 Mendez. And but at the same time, like, I do think he had a I don't think this ever came out, but I think he had something to do with Mendez's first positive test. I could be wrong, but I I would, I could see it happening that way. Um, and I think that it's just like they were trying to mold like the Soviet system with, with American system, which doesn't work because we can't tra- take drugs and we can't just not work. And I think that that was one thing that Dr. B was actually open with me about was like, Hey, these were the years that Yuri took, that Yuri took steroids. And these were the years Yuri did not take steroids. Notice the five to six meter difference. Um, yeah. <laughs> And and you can see it, and and then he would tell me what he thought was the clean world record in the hammer throw, uh, but he was always open about that, and he would always say like, look, like we built this system, like I developed this system on the years that Yuri wasn't on drugs, and when he would go on drugs, everything would just magnify, you know, and and he could take more throws, and I think that that's you know that's dude, drugs are powerful fucking shit. And I think that that's what we forget when we read all the Soviet stuff. And even I think Charles, you know, he was so into like the German style and and the Soviet style of training that oftentimes he would even neglect to recognize like, hey, guess what? For a strength coach to survive or to have a gym, you've got to be able to train 16-year-old kids who can't do an overhead squat. So how are you going to relate to that kid? Like, how am I going to get that kid to keep coming back so I can pay my bills? Like, teach me that because that's more appropriate than learning your periodization scheme. And I think that that's where it's fun. Like, dude, I love, trust me, I've read every book on on periodization. But at the end of the day, like that shit doesn't do jack for me to make money. For me to make money, it's like, how can I get 13-year-old Johnny to get a, a pump in his biceps so that he goes in his car, tells his mom like, yo, that place was awesome and he keeps coming back. You know, that's, that's like the, the side of training that people forget. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That, that's fine. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I think, I think what would be really cool and Zach and I will talk about this for you. I know I still have a ton of like more nuts and bolts questions around uh, even Bondarchuk and Poliquin and how you actually think about setting up um, like cycles and, and training and all that, but that could be probably another hour podcast on its own. Yeah. So well, let's make it, let's, we'll make we, it happen. We'll have but... to set up a part two. 
Yeah, I, I, I hope, Dana, this, is, this has been enjoyable for you. It certainly has for us, and we'd love to dive a little bit deeper, if you're cool with that, perhaps at a, at a later date. Yeah, I mean, dude, I, I'm, I'm free the next week. We got the corona lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. Well, uh, well, what we'll do is is we'll we'll log off here. Um, it's been it's been great chatting with you, and well, and and just so you listeners know, when we when we say goodbye on the podcast, <laughs> we we actually keep talking. So we're going to do our best to sell our our goodbyes here. Um, but uh, I think we'll pick up certainly with a part two, Dane, if that's cool with you. Perfect.